to Podiatry Today podcasts. I'm Dr. Jennifer Spector, the Senior Editor at Podiatry Today. Whether you are joining us for the first time or tuned in in the past, we are excited to bring you the latest in foot and ankle medicine and surgery from leaders in the field. Today we have two guests with us, Dr. J.P. McAleer and Dr. William Duke, to discuss metatarsus adductus and its related issues over two episodes. Dr. McAleer is a shareholder partner with the Jefferson City Medical Group in Jefferson City, Missouri. He is on staff at SSM Health St. Mary's Hospital in Jefferson City, Missouri, and serves as the Vice Chief of Staff at the Jefferson City Medical Group Surgical Center. He is a diplomat of the American Board of Foot and Ankle Surgery and is a fellow of the American College of Foot and Ankle Surgeons. Dr. William Duke is also a shareholder partner with the Jefferson City Medical Group and is also on staff at the SSM Health St. Mary's Hospital in Jefferson City, Missouri. He, too, is a diplomat of the American Board of Foot and Ankle Surgery and a fellow of the American College of Foot and Ankle Surgeons. Dr. McAleer discloses that he is a medical device and educational consultant for Treese Medical Concepts Incorporated and bears royalties for intellectual property interests. Dr. Duke discloses that he's an educational consultant for Treese Medical Concepts Incorporated as well. Welcome to both of you doctors and thank you so much for joining us today. So Dr. McAleer and Dr. Duke, how do you decide which patients are candidates for surgical intervention when it comes to metatarsus adductus? Uh, so that's, it's, it's interesting, Jennifer, because the, there's, a large, there's a large subset of the population that have uh, symptomatic calyx valgus uh, that also have concomitant metatarsus adductus. So if you, if you go purely by the literature, uh, approximately one-third of patients that have calyx valgus also have metatarsus adductus, but the degree of the deformity at the lesser metatarsals, the lesser rays, does not always need to be addressed. It really depends upon the relationship between the metatarsus adductus angle as well as the intermetatarsal angle and what Kilmartin described as true IM, where you can kind of uncover what a relative normal position of a second ray would be in relation to the first ray, and then you can kind of ascertain through some simple calculation uh, what that real IM is. So there's cases where you want to correct both deformities together, and the presence of the metatarsal deductus may or may not preclude you from um, putting that first metatarsal back into appropriate position. So that's kind of my algorithm. Yeah, I agree with Dr. Mackler. I, I think he's spot on with that. For me, it comes down to a, a couple things. And one of them is this, you have to look at the whole x-ray, right? When your medical assistant or your nurse comes in and says, oh, this patient's here for a bunion and gives you the whole rundown of the history, you have to focus on that entire radiograph. You have to focus on all of the other toes as well. Are you getting a windswept deformity with the toes for some reason clinically? And radiographically, look a little lateral to the first ray, right? We were all trained and looked at things and we typically get in a private practice and have this go-to method for correcting calyx valgus. But like Dr. Mackler said, it's a super high percentage, much higher than what you would think, that people have concomitant metatarsus adductus with their calyx valgus. So I think you have to do everything that he talked about. You have to look at the first IM, you have to look at the HA angle, but you also have to look over and say, well, what is the true IM? Where is the second met really at? Where's the third met really at? Is there an associated flat foot deformity? So it's kind of cliche, but 
you have to do a thorough history and physical exam that includes looking at the radiographs because a lot of times we get so busy that we tend to just focus on what people tell us, right? And we forget to look past that. Jody, you can comment on this, but something like 30-something studies, you know, you and I have talked about that look at this, but still, if you take that in relation to the number of studies that were talked about for hallux valgus, it's very minimal in comparison. Yeah, there is a paucity in the literature. I mean, there, there really is not a significant number of excellent studies uh, showing uh, approaches and outcomes for this particular problem. Most of the papers that are written on this are, are somewhat anecdotal as far as uh, just kind of singular case studies here and there showing different particular techniques or some outcomes in, in very small cohorts using, you know, various methods. And and I think Ayer had a, a good paper that showed that even with patients undergoing multiple procedures for concomitant metaductus with hallux valgus, uh, there was still approximately a 30, I believe it was a 33 or 35% reoccurrence rate of the hallux valgus, just because the most likely the metatarsus deductus had not been appropriately corrected, thus leaving lack of room essentially to correct the first ray, uh, regardless of the method in which you know you subscribe to. So if you're doing you know some kind of combined multiple distal osteotomies, or if you're doing a lapidus style procedure, or even a mid-shaft osteotomy like a scarf, you just kind of physically ran out of room to put the first ray back into appropriate position. So you still had some semblance of that residual deformity there. So clinically, initially, the patient may appear as if they have some reduction of the deformity compared to what they came into the operating room with, but radiographically, there's a significant mismatch between the mechanical and anatomic axes of these bones and, and the way that these joints function, and you may leave some inherent instability behind, which could lead to a further widening of that intermetatarsal angle over time with additional lateral deviation of the hallux and lesser digits, which gives, again, that, that windswept deformity like, uh, like Dr. Duke was uh, describing here. So, I think the lack of study material, and Jody, you comment on this and tell me what you think, but too often we think about metatarsal seductus as just a childhood problem. We look at it and go, that's mainly just kids. And what we're forgetting is that there's a lot of these that left go unnoticed or they were never looked at in the first place. And we don't even see them until they come in because of their bunion deformity or arthritis or something else is going on. So we have to realize that this is not just a problem of childhood or adolescence. This is, it extends the age spectrum. We see it on a large number of people. Yeah, the pediatric population that has metatarsus deductus is going to become a rigid adult population with metatarsus deductus. So as a child, obviously, you can work with these kids very, very early on if you can capture presence of the deformity. If, if you have a really astute pediatrician who's, who's kind of monitoring the lower extremities at birth, looking for deformity, uh, you know, looking for clubfoot, looking for congenital metatarsus deductus, you can cast these deformities out. Uh, and that that process can be quite successful, you know, subscribing to things like, uh, you know, Ponsetti and his, uh, his philosophy. It's shown uh, highly effective for these uh, lower extremity deformities. Things uh, such as tibial torsion can be casted out over time to some degree. So the problem is when these go largely unnoticed, this younger population becomes an adult population with a deformity that has set in. They have complete ossification of their growth plates, and now they're fixed and rigid. Uh, and they have 
what's primarily a transverse plane deformity where you just basically have a, a, a medialization of the first, second, and third metatarsals, which sometimes you see it in the fourth as well, but primarily the, the medial column is affected. And, and these are quite, quite challenging. So you have docs trying their best to perform their uh, combination of proximal, crescentic style osteotomies, closing base wedge type uh, osteotomies where they're trying to uh, spare joints. Some of them are trying to do a dual osteotomy at the uh, the neck and the proximal shaft. You know, so there's no real great consensus on the very best method in which we should be employing once these these patients come in as rigid adults and they have a terrible time fitting shoes because they have such a mismatch between their forefoot and their hind foot because their forefoot is so wide and the hind foot so narrow. Uh, they're either buying shoes to to accommodate for the forefoot and their heels slipping out of their shoes and they're uncomfortable because of all the shearing forces they get at the heel, or they're doing the opposite where they're buying shoes to fit the heel and the forefoot is being crushed and they're suffering. So it's quite an uh, interesting problem. And, and obviously the best method would be to catch them early, like you were saying, get them as youths before they become rigid adults. So given that there are so many different potential populations with this condition and so many different procedures that one can choose from, could you tell us a little bit about your decision-making process as far as which procedure or approach to choose for this reconstruction? So we subscribe to what we refer to as a 3-2-1 method, uh, essentially. So we do a TMT, uh, torsal metatorsal joint arthrodesis, at the third, then the second, then the first ray, uh, obviously when appropriate, because there, there are instances where you may have a isolated deviation of the second ray towards the midline of the body as well, and then you can address that second ray in isolation, and you don't have to do anything to the third. But typically speaking, we're seeing this at uh, the, the third and the second rays uh, at those TMTs. And so we're taking a arthrodesis approach with a wedge cut with flat cuts at the cuneiform and, a, and a, basically a wedge cut at the second and third, the apex of that cut being at the uh, level of the Lisfranc ligament at the second metatarsal base, and then that wedge kind of opens up as you migrate towards the lateral base of the third. So we're resecting that bone and then basically closing that deformity down, kind of like you'd close a gate. So we call it like a gate hinge approach to, to closure and then fixating that uh, in position. It's just like a simple linear uh, locking plate screw fixation construct at each one of those TMTs. And so we've done quite a number of these on patients. Dr. Duke and I uh, have done, I would say we're probably up in the, the low teens at this point. And uh, we've worked with several other of our colleagues nationally that are also doing these as well. So, I mean, we have a, a fairly large cohort of patients thus far uh, that we've we've all kind of used this method for correction. And then obviously we use a, a triplanar TMT arthrodesis as our primary means of correction of the first ray. But uh, if you have a different philosophy, uh, you, you know, you still have the ability to perform your lapis style procedure or your osteotomy of choice to to do your uh, intermetatarsal reduction based upon, you know, how, how you feel about uh, pallic valgus correction. I would agree. I think that I look at this fairly simply, like fix the major fracture fragment and the smaller ones fall back into place, right? And what we tend to miss is two and three we tend to miss those metatarsals. For whatever reason, people sometimes, in my opinion, feel like if I go this many centimeters proximal or this many centimeters lateral, it, it becomes exponentially 
harder or more difficult. But the, the truth is, if you know your anatomy, you can get to those TMT joints without complication or problem. And, you know, Dr. Mackler is, as I'm sure we'll get into, and I have developed some pearls and some tips to, to help get there, you know. But if you fix two and three, because it, it's so much of a transverse plane deformity and not a lot of rotation with one or frontal plane movement, it allows you to get that first metatarsal back where it goes. And I'll tell you for me, and Jody, you can comment on this. When I see those x-rays postoperatively, it really makes you feel good because you've restored so much function just outside of the first ray that these large calluses, sub two, sub three, that people come in with, they go away, right? And a lot of times people will come in just be, because of that. They're like, look at this large callus that I have here. I've tried and they go through X, Y, and Z and they can't get rid of it. And it's because of a larger, more, I won't say complicated, but I'll say complex problem that we can look at in simplified terms by fixing two and three, looking at any triplane correction that we can do for any of those joints and, and taking care of it. But I think triplane correction of the first ray, starting with two and three, and we can dive into four and five if we have to. Uh, we could talk about that if, if we need to and maybe dispel some myths over there where actually maybe some other rotations or points of deformity are. But that would be the most common, two and three and one. And Jody, how many times do you think you've had to go outside of one, two, and three to take care of a problem like this for somebody. Yeah, so the interesting thing, um, and that's a really good point, uh, Bill, because what I'm finding is when we're doing our reduction with the three, two, one, uh, four and five spontaneously will reduce uh, the lateral column joints at the uh, fourth uh, and fifth metatarsal cuboid articulations are flexible enough in which you can actually just physically push them out of the way. Uh, and I find that with uh, two, two is like that keystone position where it's recessed back uh, between the medial cuneiform as well as the more lateral osteostructures of third ray. Uh, it, it's kind of stuck in position. And especially when you have these more moderate to severe deformities, there's such an angulation, whether it's really originating from the, the metatarsal base or if there's a combined deformity at the uh, torso metatarsal joint, you know, just depending upon uh, the sources you read and, and kind of like what you're seeing on, on radiographs, there's probably some truth uh, to where the pathology is truly coming from. The second or third don't want to spontaneously reduce. So, so usually four and five we can leave alone. We don't really need to do much to them. Uh, so I, I tend not to go after them surgically. But uh, you do need to make sure that there's certain tenets that you're following when you're doing these, this particular approach, this procedure. Like Bill was saying, we, we, like, we like to have some specific standard uh, approaches with these so that uh, we're, we're providing the patient with a reproducible and expected result every time. And I can tell you on average, we're seeing about two to two and a half centimeters of foot, a four foot width reduction from pre-op to post-op uh, following these procedures. And, and that's immediate, uh, that's immediate change on, on x-ray. It's, it's phenomenal, the difference and the way that the patients can actually fit shoes afterwards. But when you're approaching these we need to make sure that we're making an appropriate incision on the dorsal lateral aspect of the foot. For some reason, 
a lot of docs, regardless of podiatry, orthopedics, it really makes no difference. They just don't feel comfortable going into this region of the foot because the architecture is a little off compared to what you would expect. The foot kind of drops off in this area. People feel uncomfortable. It's not an incisional approach we make quite often outside of maybe a Lisfranc or some other type of approach, or if you're doing a lot of Charcot work for reconstruction. So we like to try to center our incision right over the uh, lateral margin of the third tarsal metatarsal joint. Uh, when we're looking at these intraoperatively, we're, we're using a good fluoroscopic views. We're making sure that these are oblique views. Uh, we want to look at the medial oblique projection to ensure that we're really kind of understanding where we're lining up. Because, you know, a lot of times you look at the foot from top down, you kind of have to look at it uh, from the side and bias the foot a little bit when you approach these. So we make our incision, we're going to go down, good soft tissue dissection, you know, expose that retinaculum, get down to the extensor uh, digitorum uh, muscle, you know, separate that, get down to the joint spaces, and then go to work. Another thing we try to make sure that we do is I like to keep a very nice, robust skin bridge. Pure. So we, we do a, a first TMT triplane arthrodesis, uh, lapidus style arthrodesis. So I always like to make sure I have a nice four, uh, maybe up to four and a half centimeter skin bridge uh, between those two incisions so that we can make sure also that we don't uh, cause any dysvascularity or injury to the, the soft tissue that uh, we have there. We want these patients to heal well. So we want to try to make sure that our, our incision is appropriate as to avoid any uh, damage uh, uh, in that way. Bill, did you have anything that you wanted to kind of uh, add on uh, there as well as far as your approach? I think you hit it. If you think you're lateral enough, you're not. Go a little bit more and take some x-rays as you're doing it. The, the oblique view is really the, the pearl there to make sure you are where you think you are because I can tell you that that second TMT joint and that third TMT joint sit way far more lateral than you think they are. Uh, oftentimes, when you palpate the first and second metatarsal heads and you, and you try and put the first, second, and third TMT through range of motion just to see it, sometimes you'll think you're, you're on three, but you're really on two. So having that more lateral approach and the skin bridge, those are absolute definite non-negotiables. It makes your life so much more simple when you're doing the procedure so that you're not struggling or making additional incisions that you, you really don't need. I think the first couple of times that I did this, I took probably way more x-rays than I needed to, but it was done to ensure that I was at the location. And fluoroscopy throughout, obviously, to continue to uh, ensure that you were where you think you are, you actually are. Yeah, it's funny because when we teach these in the lab, you're trying to convince the docs that you're, you're showing them how to do this particular technique, and they, they never believe you uh, when you're setting them up with their incision. <laughs> They're like, no, 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 you're putting me in the wrong place. This is totally ridiculous where you're setting me up right now. They all think they're going to end up uh, at the fifth. You know, <laughs> They're like, you're, right. I'm going to be at the base of the fifth. It's obviously not that drastic, the, the incision position, but they get down, they do their dissection, and you ask them, say, well, take that career, put it right on the bone that you've just exposed, and go take uh, a fluoro and tell me what you see. And literally, you're always on top of the second. But it, I always feel like uh, David Copperfield, like I'm a magician every time because I think you're lying to them the whole time. But right. uh, it's kind of laughable, but it is interesting, our perspective on how the anatomy lies in comparison to the reality of how the anatomy lies. 
it is a teaching point and there is a little bit of a learning curve uh, in getting into that space efficiently and doing it in a reasonable time frame so that you can get the entire case completed you know with one tourniquet and not having to kind of drop them and, and reinflate I, I think that leads to the next pearl, Jody. And it's, if you make your incision in the right spot, you can cut two and three together as one unit and not have to worry about really stretching that skin too much. And cutting two and three, wouldn't you say that's like the key thing to fix those, those two constructs at the end uh, to get them back where you want them? But that you have to look at as entire complex and not individual joints. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I try, and, and we've, we've talked about this, and I think we're very like-minded on the approach. Typically, when we're doing this, we're going to break up the interval, the ligamentous interval between the third and the fourth metatarsal bases. And then from there, we're also going to keep intact the Lisfranc ligament. We're not going to disrupt that. So this way, when we remove the bone, the lateral portion of that unit, that block, if you will, is freed to close, to, to dock the third and the, um, the lateral cuneiform joint surfaces for arthrodesis. But the Lisfranc actually acts like a tethering point, so you can kind of rotate around it. And that tends to work really nicely. And another little thing to think about is keeping the soft tissue interval between two and three intact as well, so that this way, those two units, those two metatarsals are not moving independently of one another. So I think that's really important. Yeah, I would agree. You, when you and I were talking about this long, long time ago, as it pertains to surgically addressing those two joints, I remember you mentioning that you were, you were going through it and you were leaving them, you know, you were cutting around the lateral side of three, leaving intact the medial side of two, so you don't disrupt that ligament but then getting them to swing, like you mentioned earlier, like a gate, just closing that whole thing so that it can be addressed as a single unit, fixated separately, two and three fixated independently with the you know, plate and locking screw constructs. But by doing that, you get a larger picture of the total amount of restoration you'll get to the final appearance on your AP which I think people need to understand just that point. Don't break them apart. Treat them together. When you cut them, treat them together. When you dissect through there, don't mess with the Lisfranc ligament. Get them to swing together and then fixate independently. By doing that, it, it's a stepwise approach that if you don't skip the steps, it works out perfectly. Another takeaway here is make sure that you have appropriate fenestration of the surfaces uh, in order to encourage boning growth. And then also even consider grabbing some cancellous bone graft from the tibia or the calcaneus just to backfill uh, any little areas uh, defect or any little kind of articulation points that you know could, could use a, a boost of having some additional bone-to-bone -bone contact in those areas. So we do that. I kind of refer to it as the four corners. So where the second, third um, metatarsals, as well as the intermediate and the lateral cuneiforms come together, there's usually a small recess in between those four bones. And so I, I backfill that whole space through this process just to kind of really kind of give more of a, a robust connection point for all those bones kind of heal into each other uh, afterwards. And that tends to work pretty nicely as well.
Thank you so much, doctors, and I look forward to continuing this discussion in our next episode, where we will get into more details on technique, postoperative protocols, and the impact of metatarsus adductus on first-rate pathology. We hope you, the listeners, will join us again next time on Podiatry Today Podcasts. Don't forget, you can find Podiatry Today Podcasts on the Podiatry Today website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and your favorite podcast platforms.